How do you show up and speak out? POW invites you to join the Stoke the Vote movement, to engage, to show up at POW events, and to vote this November. We will host over 40 in-person events from coast to coast with our alliance of professional climbers, snowboarders, skiers, runners, and bikers. From our fall Stoke Fest film tour to shop talks at climbing gyms, bike shops, and outdoor stores to a college tour with POW's founder and professional snowboarder Jeremy Jones. We are fired up to connect and inspire you and the rest of the outdoor state. POW and our alliance of athletes invite you to meet the moment because midterms matter now more than ever. Join us. Hello and welcome to Life with Fire podcast, the podcast that explores our relationship with wildfire and how we can better coexist with it in the future. I'm your host, Amanda Montai, and today is our last episode in our series that is sponsored by Protect Our Winters. Uh, We've really appreciated having Protect Our Winters support the last couple episodes of the podcast that have primarily explored uh, how outdoor recreation is impacted by wildfire. As election season kind of fast approaches, it's mid-October now, um, and hopefully you've registered to vote, but I'd encourage you guys to not only vote, but really look for ways that you can engage in climate advocacy in your communities, whether that's getting involved with your local FireWise organization or a fire-adapted network, maybe volunteering for your local trail network, uh, having conversations with your friends about these things, learning more about these things, getting more involved locally in climate organizations, Uh, potentially even getting involved politically at the local level, at the county level. These are really important steps, things that we can all do as outdoor recreationists or as folks who are interested in natural resources. Uh, Those perspectives are really important at at that grassroots level. So find a way to get involved in other ways, uh, no matter what that might be for you. So I'm going to keep my intro short now beyond my little soapbox about voting and getting involved locally. Today's guest is Jude Bayham. Jude is a member of the Protect Our Winners Science Alliance. He is also an environmental and resource economist at Colorado State University, and he does some research on the economic impacts of wildfire on recreation, kind of very specifically, but also kind of more generally as well. We talk a lot about that in this episode. We also talk about Lyme disease and how Lyme disease is being sort of perpetuated by a lack of fire in a lot of places, and especially in the Northeast. We haven't spoken a lot about the Northeast, so uh, this is a good one for the folks who live over in that area, in the New England area. And we also talk about using Strava data to see what people are doing in the aftermath of wildfires. So seeing where recreationists are going, seeing how much traffic certain areas are getting in the aftermath of wildfire, and then a bunch of other cool stuff that that Jude's got going on. And uh, he he taught me a lot in this conversation and really kind of blew my mind in a few places. So hopefully you guys glean as much from this conversation with Jude as I did. He really gives us a good summation of all of the impacts of, of wildfire on recreation. So this is a really good good episode to end on for this series. One final quick note before we get into the episode is that we will be taking a break after this one goes live, so we'll probably be coming back in mid-November or so, and we'll have some in-person episodes for you guys then that we did on the road, by we I mean I, I guess, but that I did on the road while I was um, kind of traveling through the Northwest on a road trip, 
I talked to a few folks in Oregon who provided some really great insight about what's going on in Oregon and some great ways that folks can get involved at a community level with prescribed fire associations and kind of what that actually looks like and how you can actually get involved. So those are topics we haven't really touched on in terms of actual like involvement and you know, we know all the solutions. We know that getting involved in these places can be really important, but how do you actually do that? How do you actually help put fire on the ground? So uh, we talk a lot, a lot about that in those those coming episodes, and we'll get those out to you guys in mid-November or so. So thank you for listening, as always. Thanks for the support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Yeah, my name's Jude Bayam. Uh, I'm currently uh, an associate professor at Colorado State in the Department of Ag and Resource Economics. Um, my entry into FIRE was, uh, was more just sort of coincidental in the early days. I was uh, doing my PhD in Environmental and Resource Economics at Washington State University. And a faculty member that I was working with had some funding to work on uh, wildfire suppression issues. And it was how you know, it was, it was really about the economics of it. So how uh, costs are rising, you know, can we understand, can we model this with statistical models, you know, good, good old boring like data analysis stuff. Um, and I started talking to more people, learning more about fire and just really um, just became very interested in it and saw economic issues all over the place. And, and you know, what you're kind of alluding to with, with recreation and fire um, is something I've, I've come to more since I uh, joined Colorado State. But um, yeah, it's, you know, it's just a really fascinating issue. It's extremely complex. Um, and so now I think about fire a lot. I work with the U.S. Forest Service. I work with the Colorado State Forest Service. Um, and on a variety of fire issues. It's always fascinating to me, like how many different ways you can come at this topic. Like for some reason, I like didn't think that there would be, I mean, like I'd never, obviously now that I think about it, it's it's obvious that there would be an economic side of this that people would be researching, mm -hmm. but I just like haven't thought about like how you can be an economist and you can actually come into this, into this space and like be able to do pretty significant research and pretty important research. So I'm yeah. ex I'm really interested in what that research has been lately and especially interested in, in, in anything that's been sort of recreation related or adjacent uh, if possible. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'll, I'll just talk a little bit about, um, well, I'll, I'll give you this sort of high level, how I think about all fire related research, uh, you know, with the, you know, especially as it relates to economics. Um, you know, I, li I like to break it up into phases of the fire. So before the fire happens, you know, all the planning, there's a lot of economics research that goes into that, how people perceive risk, uh, you know, where they decide to build homes, how they decide to uh, clear, you know, defensible space. Those are all economics questions. They, they, there's some really interesting sort of spatial dynamics there, spillovers, uh, you know, so if you, uh, you know, clear fuels and build defensible space, that actually reduces risk for your neighbor, right? That's an economics problem. And, uh, and so, uh, yeah, really interesting research there. Then the operations phase, which is actually where I've spent a lot of my time thinking about and where a lot of my research with the Forest Service is. So this is really, how do we use our firefighting resources most effectively? 
So if we send air tankers, engines, hotshot crews to this fire, they're not available to be sent to this other fire. And so that's a really complex problem that's evolving over time in space. Um, you know, all we there are five main federal agencies that engage in, in fire management and they uh, share resources. And so that coordination problem is complex across political lines too. Uh, so that's sort of the operations phase of things. And then post-fire, what, what are the consequences of fire? How does it affect communities? How do those communities recover? Um, so I think about those areas and I've worked at different times with different intensities uh, across those areas. So um, to, to relate it to outdoor recreation, I'll highlight some of my work and then some other work that I'm, I'm just uh, familiar with and, and I, th I think is really interesting and good stuff. So um, uh, I have, have done some, some work on sort of ecological and, and you know, I say ecological, but really biophysical disturbances um, and, and outdoor recreation. So some of it's been sort of high level, like uh, the role of uh, Lyme disease on on outdoor recreation behavior. And, you know, we look at how uh, you know how Lyme disease has become more prevalent, starting kind of in the Northeast and the Midwest. How uh, uh, people have changed the time they spent uh, outdoors, um, using several data sources. And most recently, had a graduate student at Colorado State um, study the impact of fire on long-term camping reservations. So a lot of what we're looking at is, is you know, because we have data on it. And so I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with rec.gov or, you know, these other reservation systems. Uh, well, fortunately they generate a lot of data for us and we can look over long periods of time, you know, if a fire occurs near this campground, uh, you know, what, what are the consequences of that uh, over the long term? And so the, the question was, yeah, how does reservation patterns change um, up to 15 years post-fire? And we actually see that it's a, a, a good, uh, there was a clear decline in reservations for about seven, six to seven years, I think, depending on like the region and areas. So that's sort of an average effect. Um, and then that really kind of goes away after 10 or so years. And if you think about fire ecology, that kind of makes sense, right? It's depending on severity of fire and, and the, 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 you know, vegetation, you're going to get potentially a burn, uh, you know, even a bad severity burn. And then you're going to get the undergrowth start to come back. And a lot of times it's really beautiful flowers and nice green vegetation. And that's, that's kind of appealing, right? Even if you have um, burn snags and things like that. And, and so I think um, our results there you know, sort of made sense. Um, others have, have been looking at uh, the impact on national park visitation. So when fires occur either in or near parks, um, you know, that that de uh, decreases uh, visitation. Uh, so, so one of the things I'd like to do sort of in the future is, is just move to more sources of data that we can use to understand different forms of recreation. I'm currently pursuing Strava data. That would be <laughs> excellent. Um, uh, and then we can really start seeing activities and how certain activities respond to fire. So economists really like to study elasticities, which is a measure of how responsive an activity or something is to, to some other event, in this case, fire. 
Um, and so I would like to characterize all of these elasticities for how, how responsive things are. Because if we understand that, then we can start to understand, okay, if fire becomes more prevalent in the future, this is how we expect it to change outdoor recreation. Or more importantly, how people will substitute across recreation activities. Um, you know, a lot of the climate change literature has has already pointed to that in, uh, you know, substitution from snow sports to more transitional sports. So think of the mountain biking season maybe getting longer or having a strange gap because it's so hot in the summer, but you have these shoulder seasons that are sort of starting to bleed into what was formerly snow season, you know, things like that. Um, so uh, these are sort of the economic impacts to recreation and, and we have methods to value recreation activities. Um, so not, we call them non-market valuation methods, but different, different forms to, to look at, uh, to, to put dollar values on, on how people value recreation and how fire might uh, impact that. Um, and then there's a whole set of research papers um, still ongoing that, that are trying to value the impacts to local economies. Um, and, and that's, it's interesting and, and actually much more complicated than it might seem at first. Because um, in some cases, we actually see increased economic activity right after fire. Um, there's a, I saw someone present a paper very recently showing that uh, the construction industry uh, tends to uh, do pretty well right after fire because oftentimes they're they're helping rebuild uh, things. Um, and then even the effects of, you know, if it's a large enough fire, there's so many fire resources going to that area. They're spending money on hotels and, you know, things like that. And, and so sometimes we actually see increased economic activity. And we know that obviously if, if fire is damaging property, uh, then, then that's going to decrease you know, wealth or are measures of, of, you know, what people have. And, and so that's not, that, that's a different measure than like GDP um, or, or sort of output. Um, and so I think what we're really seeing that, you know, some of the takeaways I've seen from a lot of these papers are it really depends on the size of the fire. Um, so historically fires of sort of moderate or even small size um, aren't, don't have dramatic impacts, but that's not what we've been seeing lately, right? We've been seeing these mega fires. Um, so fires like the Dixie or Cameron Peak fire in, uh, near me in Colorado, um, we're, we're seeing that they do, you know, they make headlines, they, they affect people's lives and, and um, th those do generate uh, economic in, impacts both in the long and, and short term. Mm -hmm. Whoa, there are so many things there that I can't wait to talk about. I know, about sorry. Oh, don't be sorry. You, you, you did you me too. <laughs> did you see my eyes lighting up like multiple times? Like it had all these different yeah, things yeah, that yeah. I'd never thought about somehow. Like obviously like the Lyme disease thing was the first thing that like keyed off in my mind. Like, of course, Lyme disease is going to be, is increasing like ecologically. I don't know. I don't actually know the ecology there. I just know that there's got to be an increase um, in, yeah. in ticks that would then contribute to a, gre a greater amount right. of Lyme disease. Can you talk a little bit more maybe on that topic? Um, do you have much experience oh, sure. there? Because that's fascinating. Well, and I feel like that is explicitly, you know, that's just something that I've seen even in my friend group, just more and more folks uh, being diagnosed with, with Lyme disease. And it's really, yeah. 
Yeah, no. So, so uh, yeah, I'm happy to speak more about that. Um, honestly, this, th that research project was, was pretty separate from the fire work I've done. So I had never thought about that intersection. And, and I think um, you raise a really interesting question. And I think that's, that'd be right for, for research. Um, the work we did was, was really to, to quantify this, this response. So uh, we use data from the American time use survey, which asks, a sample of people across the U.S., uh, how they spent 24 hours of, the, of their day, minute by minute. And this is an ongoing survey. They're, the Census Bureau and the Bureau of Labor Statistics is, is running the survey. And so we get this um, interesting sort of sliding window of, of people over time. And what we see is in areas, you know, largely in the Northeast, um, I, I was, I happened to be a postdoctoral researcher at Yale at the time. And uh, Lyme is named for Old Lyme, Connecticut, which is just just north of us there. Um, and so we were looking at how it spread over time and looking at how people's reported time spent outdoors away from their home changed in some of these areas. Um, and so what we documented was as people as Lyme became more prevalent, we'd see people spending less and less uh, time outdoors. Um, and then we could try to estimate how you know the value of each of those trips on average and and we, we came up with some some pretty large numbers of sort of the the non-obvious sort of non-medical costs still economic costs of of um you know lyme disease becoming a lot more prevalent in these communities that's yeah that's fascinating wow um yeah that i mean that's like a connection to the outdoor community i had not considered previously until this conversation so that's that's great. That's kind of what I was looking for. It was like, how can we meaningfully connect this to in a way that is accept or um, accessible to the outdoor community, like things that topics that people think about um, mm -hmm. in the outdoor space. Um, those maybe who haven't been impacted by fire. You know, I live in Bellingham, Washington, so we don't see a ton of fire mm -hmm. up here, and I don't feel like a lot of my my friends are really like that's not really in their worldview. Um, but that's like that's I think that's something that is genuinely probably affecting large amounts of the country that maybe wouldn't necessarily be seeing fire often. So, you know, yeah. whether, whether I mean, that's the, the whole Eastern side of the, the all, country, basically. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So um, cool. And, you know, when we were talking about like these big, these big fires that, you know, that are really economically impactful, I was thinking about the lion's head fire, which just they're opening. I think they opened today or yesterday, that area that was closed by the lion's head fire. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that area, but, um, but as you were talking about no, that, I was thinking about exactly. this little town of Estacada, which is in a forest that I used to work with work in. Um, I was on a fire crew in like Mount Hood National Forest and Estacada mm -hmm. is just this tiny little like outpost town. And the only reason you'd really go to it is to go into the national forest and that whole national forest in that river system in there, the Clackamas was all shut down for the last two years since that fire impacted that area. And I have seen a lot of stories about the economic impacts in that town in particular. That's just kind of what's closest to mind. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in knowing like what that sort of uptick looks like after the initial that initial opening, like the forests reopening or like the, the logging, like the, the mitigation is done. Um, it's deemed safe to the public. Like how long does it take for people to, if you have this data to sort of like re-enter and like feel safe and feel like they're getting like the experience that they're looking for in these places? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really good question. I'll, I'll just, uh, I'm 
as a as an academic, you know, who communicates science or at least tries to, I I, I try to be really uh, forthcoming about what we don't know. Uh, and I, I'll just frankly say we, I don't know this yet. What <laughs> um, I but I, I will comment on it that. Um, you know, I think our uh, the paper I mentioned on camping reservations, I think, speaks to it a little bit. Um, you know, there, there, there are certainly in the early phases where they are doing restoration or assessing assessing safety um, that that that's going to be determined by officials in that forest um, and, and post fire rehab, you know, people doing that work, um, you know, snag hazards are really important during firefighting and, and post. And, and so I think that's, you know, one of the big safety issues. Um, once it is deemed safe for, for reopening, I, I think it is in part going to depend on, on vegetation, you know, so the, the, in fire, they call it fuel models, but, you know, essentially the, the types of vegetation that, uh, that are there, how quickly they recover um, and, and what they look like during recovery, you know, and, and then, um, um, so yeah, I, I think, you know, we found in that camping paper about six years, um, and I would suspect, um, some of that might be a reasonable proxy for, uh, you know, for other activities, hiking, biking, those types of things. Um, but yeah, I, th I think that's a, it's a reasonable research question. And, you know, to your point about these smaller communities, um, yeah, they often don't show up as, uh, you know, with a lot of economic activity, right? They're usually lumped into larger areas, maybe counties or, or adjacent sort of larger communities. And, and, and so we don't, um, the, the data doesn't always reflect the, uh, you know, what's really happening on the ground. So I think that the research uh, needs to uh, um, accompany those, you know, stories like the anecdotal stories of what's actually happening on the ground in these communities, because um, the, the, both of those are are important sources of information and, and tell us what recovery will look like. Right. And with the Cameron Peak being in your backyard, do you have any sort of anecdotal, um, I guess, yeah, anecdotal evidence of this of this happening or anything that you can speak to there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so that that, um, you know, Cameron Peak was named after the peak it started on but it it uh came through um a lot of the arapaho roosevelt uh forest um and burned pretty close to uh to fort collins it, it started uh pretty well up up the Poudre river drainage um and, and came down um and and burned you know very as fires do uh erratically very slowly at times uh and then very quickly at times and when it would make big runs it would make it would cover a lot of ground. Um, and so it did burn down into the canyon and there are lots of home, Highway 14 runs along the Kuta River. Um, and, you know, unfortunately several homes were lost, uh, but one of the biggest, uh, and, and so now driving up there, you know, I spent a lot of time up there this summer, um, you still see clear evidence of, of the burn scar. Vegetation is is starting to recover on the north facing slopes and less so on the south facing, uh, just the, the nature of uh, the different vegetation that'll take hold there. Um, one of the things we did uh, experience that community experienced uh, in the summer following the fire, you know, summer thunderstorms coming in that a lot of the slopes had been destabilized. And, and so 
um, the areas that were at high risk of, of seeing slides, some of them did, uh, and unfortunately did uh, destroy homes and, and lives were lost in that. Um, and I mean, driving up after that, you know, once they reopened the roads, um, it was, you know, it's just devastating to see. I mean, there was a, a roof in the middle of the, the river for six months, probably until the, the following year. Um, and, you know, still evidence of that slide. So a lot of those areas, a lot of the access up in the forest uh, has been reopened, but, um, you know, certain areas are, are still closed for restoration. Um, I know there was a lot of restoration work going on up there, too. Uh, a lot of other fire ecologists and uh, sort of fire adjacent disciplines at Colorado State were, were involved in that. So, um, yeah, I, th I think we're learning, you know, all of these events our opportunities to learn and you know we just need to learn from them there's always lessons to learn so totally um well i wanted to see if you had anything to say about the ira or if you had an if you've had a chance to sort of analyze oh, yeah. like how the uh the ira may be economically affecting you know i know it's gonna it's gonna be a benefit but just curious about the economics there and like what you've kind of been able to assess um, in the first couple of days, I guess. Yeah. So I'm actually going to take a step back uh, previously to the, <laughs> the, the infrastructure bill that was passed last year. Oh, perfect. Um, yep. That bill actually had a lot more very clearly uh, designated uh, money and funding for, for fire. Um, a, a lot of it for fuel treatments. And, you know, that's been a big discussion in, in the, fire community for years now, right? Fire ecologists have been screaming that we need more fire on the ground and, and we need to treat uh, the, the extraordinary fuel loads we have in the forest. And, and so um, there, uh, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but it, you know, in the several hundreds of millions uh, for, for fuel treatment activities, um, also in that bill was, was, uh, uh, was, was uh, language to, um, better support and, and restructure firefighting uh, wages and conditions. Um, and, and so those are really important pieces too. Um, firefighter retention uh, is, is an ongoing issue. Um, so that bill had a lot of money um, to support different aspects of, of fire and that the fuel treatment is, is gonna be really important. And in that bill, there's also a lot of money for for continued and ongoing research, um, and and so I think that's really important. You know, there's been a lot of work done on fire, but especially in the economics literature, I feel like there's just so much more uh, to be done, um, and so I'm hoping that will that will help uh, helping increase that attention. Um, as far as what I've heard for the IRA, um, it. I think it's going to support a lot of that. So, so um, there are several components uh, that are for, you know, sort of climate resilience, um, ecological restoration, those types of, of activities. And, you know, I think it's a pretty clear link to fire uh, in a lot uh, in a lot of areas around the country, certainly the Western uh, forests. And, and so I think we are gonna see a lot of that money uh, combined or at least um, help to increase funding for projects and, and programs that are ongoing. Um, and, and so I think there's probably 
even going to be more for sort of um, like community resilience. Um, and so this, you know, these are, uh, th there are, and there are well-established programs, you know, the FireWise program um, and, and fire adapted communities. Um, so there are programs that have been ongoing for a while, and I think they're just going to be enhanced uh, with this additional funding and, and really, really try to get the message out to two communities that um, that you know it we we all have to be ready for this um, and and you know as much as uh, the firefighting suppression activities can do they they can't save everybody and and we're starting to see fire behavior that's so extreme uh, that it, it's really uh, dangerous to put firefighters in, in certain situations. And, and so in those cases, we can increase safety, we can increase, we, we can reduce the, the need to put firefighters in those situations by preparing, by mitigating risk beforehand. And, and so I think um, you, we're going to see a lot more coordination across uh, these programs and, and units to this end of trying to prepare better. Totally. Yeah. And hopefully like, I mean, I don't know how this works, but just really getting the word out about FireWise and Fire Adapted and that they have grants available and just right. like making sure that homeowners in these really vulnerable communities actually know that and actually know that they should be using it. Yeah. Um, I feel like is, is a big part of that. Like actually like hopefully allowing this money to make really uh, be make meaningful change kind of at the, the baseline level, like at that homeowner level. Um, mm -hmm. and yeah, I think we have a perfect, I think we have a great structure in place in order to dole that money out in, uh, in appropriate ways. Um, like I said, yeah, especially with the fire adapted network and firewise network, I feel like those, those folks do such good work. Um, cool. Well, I don't have any other questions, but I'd love to know if you have anything else you'd like to add or anything we didn't touch on that you'd like to. Well, your, your last comment did, did just remind me, um, you know, the, the Colorado state forest service, uh, this is largely in response to the Cameron Peak fire. Um, the, the, the Forest Service runs a, a uh, grants program for communities uh, to help uh, mitigate fire risk through fuel treatments and, and things like that. And in, in response to Cameron Peak, they got a pretty large infusion uh, and, and a more permanent uh, funding mechanism. And in part, or in that legislation, they um, they reduced the match requirements for uh, communities with fewer economic resources. So, trying to um, help address, you know, some of the inequities. You know, in in Colorado, we certainly have you know, communities like Aspen, you know, resort, very wealthy communities, and and then we have, you know, also communities that that aren't, you know, that that don't have. Um, for whatever reason, that that same uh, uh, structure of community, that, that really that amount of wealth in in the community, and 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 so I think um, you know I, I hope that efforts like that uh, serve as a as a model for other states, you know, to to help um, provide that additional funding uh, and and help remedy some of those economic inequities. All right, that's what we've got for you today. Thank you for listening. Huge thanks to Jude for coming on the show. And thank you.
course, one more thank you for Protect Our Winners for sponsoring the last few episodes of the show and for allowing me to explore this topic that I've been really interested in since, uh, since starting the podcast. So thanks, Protect Our Winners. Make sure you go out and vote this election season. Uh, make sure you're also going out and doing those community initiatives, getting involved locally in grassroots organizations if you have them in your community, those kinds of things. Uh, getting involved in the Fire Adapted Network. So many options. I hope you find something that works for you. If you